Back in the decade of the 60s, the famous theologian Karl Barth once gave a whole year's worth of lectures on the theology of the 19th century liberal theologian Frederick Schleiermacher. And in order to enhance his lectures, Barth brought into the classroom in Basel a bust of Frederick Schleiermacher. And throughout the course of the years, he was lecturing on Schleiermacher and being critical in his analysis of Schleiermacher. He would direct his remarks to that bust that was there on the podium. And I was told by students who attended that particular lecture series that on the last day of class, when he was all finished with his critique of Schleiermacher, Bart walked over to the bust and said, well, so much for the theology of Schleiermacher, and took his hand and knocked the bust on the floor and broke it into a hundred pieces. I'm not going to do that with my bust of Plato because I can't afford to buy a new one. But I would like to pose a question to you, Mr. Plato. You're telling us about all these ideas that have perfect being and are not in a state of becoming, and, and the things in this world are simply imperfect receptacles. What I want to ask you is how do you know that? Now, what kind of a question is that? Plato, how do you know? Well, when we look at the history of philosophy, we see that philosophers are concerned with many different areas of truth. And in antiquity, the primary focus of the philosophers was on the level or in the realm of metaphysics. And I've already defined that as the the realm above and beyond the physical realm. They were interested in what might also be called, as another name for this, ontology. That is, the science of being. What is the real essence or substance or stuff of reality? What is its being? That's the metaphysical quest in the history of philosophy. But a second major concern for philosophers historically and also in the ancient world was the subdivision of philosophy that we call epistemology. And epistemology deals with the science of learning. And it seeks to answer the question, how do we know what we know? Do we know things strictly through having a sensory experience of them by seeing, feeling, tasting, touching, hearing, and so on? Or is the primary way we get at truth through the formal actions of deduction and logic, the use of our mind? Or is it a combination of those two things? Or is it something else altogether like flashes of intuition or mystical apprehension? Those are questions of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Well, Plato is important not only for giving to the world his theory of ideas, but also for expounding another theory that is identified with him called the theory of recollection the theory of recollection. Now, to understand that, we have to step back a little bit, remember where we were in our last session with his idea of ultimate ideas and imperfect copies in this world. Since everything that we encounter in this world is only an imperfect copy of the real ideal, or the ideal real, 
then if we're really going to understand truth, we have to get beyond the realm of personal experience, of senses, of what we see and perceive. We've got to get beyond physical things to get to that ultimate realm of ideas. Now, Plato made an important distinction, a distinction between opinion and knowledge. And what he was searching for was knowledge. He didn't want to just canvas people's opinions and hear what everybody thought about this or thought about that. He wanted to get to real, sound, solid knowledge that you could take to the bank. Perhaps his most famous illustration is the illustration or the parable he tells about the cave. You've all heard of Plato's cave. To restate it quickly in an abbreviated form, he tells the story of some prisoners who from birth are chained inside a cave. And they are facing a wall. And there is a partition behind them. And then behind the partition is the entrance to the cave where some light from the sun comes in. And it bounces over this partition and so on and casts shadows on the wall. Now, the way the prisoners are situated in their chains is that the only thing they can see in this dimly lit cave are the shadows dancing on the wall. They can't see each other. They only see the shadows of each other. And from their limited perspective, their whole appropriation and apprehension of reality It's limited to the shadows on the wall. But what Plato is trying to say is the shadows are not real. I mean, they're real shadows, but they only are illusory images of the reality that they're reflecting on the wall. In order to have true knowledge, one has to get out of the chains and out of the cave and out into the light where they can now see things as they are. Now, remember, this is an illustration because he does not believe that people who get out of the cave and look in light of the sun and look at objects have therefore entered into the realm of the ideal. No, he's using an earthly analogy to talk about this spiritual concept of knowing eternal ideas. Now, in order to get in touch with the eternal. What is required much more than the senses is the use of the mind. Because for Plato, the mind is interrelated with what we would call the soul. And Plato, who had been influenced by the Pythagoreans, believed that every human being has within his or her body an eternal soul. That soul, the soul of the person, has always been. It is eternal, and it is from the realm of the forms or of the ideas. And that eternal soul that is in your body has inside of itself already 
all the knowledge that there is in the eternal realm. So that when you are born, you are born with the knowledge of the eternal, the knowledge of these ideas already contained in your soul or in your mind. Now, that may seem strange to us, but that's very important in the history of philosophy because Plato is talking about what we call innate ideas. Ideas we are born with. Ideas that are inherent within the human mind. They're not learned. They're not acquired. They are innate. You're born with them. Now, a technical way to describe that in philosophy, and if you ever do study philosophy to any degree, you're going to come across this term again and again and again, so we might as well learn it. It's the word a priori. Knowledge that we are born with, knowledge that is already contained in the mind, is called a priori knowledge, which means literally knowledge that is prior to experience. Knowledge that you gain from experience, knowledge that you learn through observation and experimentation and through the experiences of life, you call a posteriori. That is, knowledge that comes after experience. But a priori knowledge is knowledge that's built in, inherent, it's innate. Now, for example, how do you know that two and two are four? Is that a mental knowledge that you have forever? Or is that something gained from experience? That's an ongoing debate among philosophers and students of epistemology. Does Christianity believe that you have built-in knowledge of anything? Yes. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are born with a sense of God, that we have built into our minds a conscience. God has written His law on our hearts, and before we ever study anything, we already have a sense of what is right and what is wrong, built into our souls, as it were. So, the idea of a priori knowledge is not found simply in Plato. In fact, the whole history of what we call rationalism, on one side of the philosophical scale, has some form of a priori knowledge or other, which we will see as we go along. But I'm just introducing these concepts to you at this point in our historical survey. Now, Plato's view, as I said, was heavily influenced by Pythagoras. And Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans taught a doctrine that was called the doctrine of the transmigration of the soul. Transmigration. Now, that's a fancy word. Transmigration. Now, there's nothing in that word that you haven't heard many, many, many times. You've heard the prefix trans, transoceanic, transamerican, huh? transworld airlines, TWA. Trans means across. Okay? If you transport it, you take it across from one gate to another, and so on. And you've all heard the word migration. There's emigration, immigration, migratory birds. Birds that migrate are birds that move from one location to another. 
So transmigration just simply means moving or migrating across from one something to another something. Well, the concept of transmigration of the soul that was developed by the Thagoreans, you've heard of, only you hear it by a different term. The term you usually associate with this idea is the idea of reincarnation. Very important to Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion that says that the souls of people go through many different incarnations. That is, to be incarnate means to be in a body, in the flesh. And so when you were born, you were born with a soul and a body. Now, Christianity believes that that only happens once, and then the judgment. You're born, you live, you die, you're judged, and so on. But Eastern religions that hold the reincarnation say, you may be born in this life, and you may have Bridie Murphy experiences under hypnosis and recall that you were the Prince of Wales back in the 16th century, or something that you've lived 27 times in the past, either as a human being or as some animal. Some people have views that they want to make sure that they protect the lives of animals because they believe that some people, when they die, are reincarnated as animals, depending on how you lived in this world. The idea being that if you live a virtuous life in this world, in your next incarnation, you'll have a better deal. You'll get a higher state. Or if you've led a bad life in this world, in your next incarnation, you'll have a lower state of existence, and so on. But the basic principle is that the soul keeps moving from one body to the next, or from one place to the next. Now, Plato believed in a form of reincarnation, which he borrowed from the Pythagoreans. And so he would say that the soul, however, does not start when you are born. The soul is eternal. And when the soul is born into this particular incarnation, it brings all this knowledge of the eternal realm. However, once the body captures the soul, the impact of the body on the soul is to dull and obscure and hold down the clarity of vision that would be found in a pure soul or pure mind. That's why Plato would speak of the body being the prison house of the soul. Now, again, think about how we learn. We learn with our eyes, our ears, our hands, and so on, as well as with the thoughts of our mind. Now, in our day, we put most of the emphasis in the scientific realm in our ability to learn with the senses, empirically, as it were. If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, or smell it, you know, it doesn't exist or it's suspect. Plato is just the opposite. Plato believed that the highest way to know anything is through the mind, not through the senses, because the senses are always distorting 
reality. And even if the senses have a perfect grasp of the reality that they are seeing out there, remember that that reality that they're seeing, the physical world, is at best an imperfect copy of the idea. So that you can't get any further than the shadows on the wall in the cave through what we would call the scientific investigation. In order to get real truth, you got to get in touch with the rational, because the rational perceives the real. Now, if these perfect ideas that are stored up in your soul and in your mind are being suppressed or hindered or obscured by the impact of the weakness of your flesh and the weakness of your body, how do you get at it? Well, again, you get at it through recall, through recollection, through remembering. And how do you get to that remembrance? Back to the Socratic method. By questioning, by contemplating, by reasoning, by dialogue and debate, we try to cut through the prison bars of the body to get down to the rudimentary ideas that are long buried in the soul. And that's the process of education. The process of education is not to give you information you don't already have, but it is to get out of you the information that's already there. See the difference? Now, in order to prove his theory of recollection, he wrote several dialogues, one of which was the Meno Dialogue, M-E-N-O, fascinating dialogue. I remember when I used to teach ancient philosophy in college that I took a student who had no background in math and no background in philosophy and got him in front of the class, and I played the role of Plato in the dialogue, and this poor student unwittingly was performing the role of the character for whom the dialogue is named, Mino. Mino is a slave boy who has no education. And in the dialogue, Socrates is cross-examining Mino and just asks him certain questions that are not designed to inform the slave boy of any information, just asking him basic questions. And what he gets out of the slave boy after asking the right questions, he gets the slave boy to articulate the Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. He draws some diagrams in the sand and all of that and has the boy do this, and the boy figures it out and comes up with this classic theorem of math. And Plato says that by this exercise of questioning, probing, dialoguing, proves that the knowledge was already there innately in the mind. All right. Now, for Plato, one of his concerns with this knowledge pursuit was to do what he called the job of saving the phenomena. Saving the phenomena. He saw the saving of the phenomena the chief task of science. What does he mean by saving the phenomena? What are the phenomena? The phenomena are the data bits that we experience 
the shadows in the cave, the things that we see in this world, trees and plains and birds and bees and, and water and streams and so on. And the scientist is, just like the ancient philosopher, is looking at all of this and saying, how can we make sense out of it? Phenomena happens to refer to that which is the realm of appearances. We see things as they appear. Well, what laws or theories will make sense of all of that stuff that appears to us in our lifetime? So Plato is saying we need an adequate system of thought that will save the phenomena. That is, make sense out of it, redeem it from chaos. And his philosophical system is not just abstract philosophy, but it's really trying to give the metaphysical or philosophical foundation for science, the ultimate theory that will make sense out of everything. That's what he sees as the task of philosophy and the task of science, and that's where they marry. And of course, the history of science follows very closely the history of philosophy. And you're all aware of what happens with the radical changes and upheavals that take place in the world of science. We talk about paradigm shifts, where a paradigm is a model. And it's a model that we hope is a model of reality, like Copernicus had, like Ptolemy had, like Newton had, like Einstein has. And the purpose of this paradigm or this model is to explain everything that we observe. But the problem is, in every system, scientific system that's ever been devised, there have always been what we call anomalies. And what are anomalies? Anomalies are those little quirks of our experience that aren't explained by the system. They don't really fit. And you get enough of these, and these things become bothersome and irksome enough, what happens? Somebody comes along, changes the paradigm, gives us a new model that will then explain these strange things that didn't fit in the old model. And that's the way science moves and progresses forward. That whole business, that whole task is doing what Plato said, saving the phenomena. If you have phenomena that don't fit into the current system, if you want to save that phenomenon, you've got to expand your paradigm and change it. Finally, Plato taught the ultimate idea was the idea of the good. The idea of the good. And he defined it this way, that the perfect ideal of good is the universal author of all things beautiful and all things that are right, and is the source of all reason and truth. Now, there's a great argument among historians and philosophers whether Plato's idea of the good is Plato's God. He doesn't say that it is. But one of the reasons why it's so tempting to see it is because it looks so similar to the biblical concept of God, who is absolute, perfect, eternal goodness, who is the author and fountainhead of all that is beautiful, all that is good, and all that is true. Is it any wonder that apologists such as Justin Martyr would read the things of Plato and say, so much of Plato's thinking seems to reflect the influence of the Logos, the divine Logos, who enlightens all who come into the world.